0: Hey folks, Kaiser here. We're really proud to offer you Cineca listeners a sneak preview of one of the new shows in the Cineca Network, Café y Seda, or Coffee and Silk, our first Spanish-language show. Don't worry, this episode is in English, and the podcast will occasionally feature other English-speaking guests, but most of the time it will be in Spanish. The show is hosted by Parsifal de Sola, who some of you might remember as a guest on Seneca. Parsifal is the executive director of the ABF China Latin America Research Center, and he's also a non-resident senior fellow in the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. He's a native of Venezuela, and his focus is on Sino-Latin American relations. Between 2019 and 2020, he acted as Chinese foreign policy advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs under the interim government of Venezuela, under Juan Guaido. I will be back next week with a regularly scheduled cynical podcast, but in the meantime, enjoy this and definitely subscribe to the show, which in a very short time, we'll be switching over to our network. So, without further ado, here's Café Iseda, Coffee and Silk.
1: Tras romper diplomaticas con Taiwan,
2: el gobierno de Daniel Ortega, Beijing its own, in South <音声><音声><音声>
1: Welcome, welcome, everybody, welcome to Silk and Coffee. Café y Seda, a space dedicated to China's ever-evolving role in Latin America and the Caribbean. With us, you will find that there's no topic off the table. We cover everything from Chinese loans and finance in the region, BRI Dynamics, US and China competition in the region, all the way to the stories of Latin American entrepreneurs in China. Silicon Coffee is sponsored by the ABF China Latin America Research Center in Bogotá. We couldn't be more excited because as of today, we are a proud member of the Seneca Network powered by SubChina. I am Parsifal Sola, coming to you from our studio in Bogota. Today I am thrilled to welcome Professor Evan Ellis to Silken Coffee. Dr. Ellis is a research professor of Latin American Studies at the Strategic Studies Institute of the U.S. Army War College in Washington, D.C., His work focuses on the region's relationships with China and other non-Western hemisphere actors. Dr. Ellis previously served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff with responsibility for Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as international narcotics and law enforcement issues. He has given testimony on Latin American security issues to the U.S. Congress on various occasions and is often cited in the print media in both the United States and Latin America for his work in this area. Dr. Ellis has also been awarded the Order of Military Merit José María Córdova by the Colombian government for his scholarship on security issues in the region. He's a fluent Spanish speaker who has traveled extensively in the region, having had the pleasure of meeting him in person, deeply knowledgeable and genuinely cares about Latin America. Evan, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: First of all, thanks for having me on the program, and it's great to be with you and to be able to share my thoughts uh, with uh, your program, uh, uh, Day Cafe.
1: Great. Let's get right to it, then. I will first lay down some statistics to kick off our conversation. From an economic point of view, Latin America has been the region most affected by the pandemic. With only around 8% of the world's population, it accounts for 32% of deaths due to COVID. In 2020, the region's GDP dropped around 9.1% compared to the global average of 4.9. It is estimated that the pandemic pushed around 45 million people into poverty, reaching a total of around 230 million. This accounts to as much as 35% of poor people worldwide, bringing the region's numbers back to 2006 levels. Pre-pandemic, Latin American governments already had a vested interest in accommodating China where possible to attract investment. Likewise, Chinese companies, both state-owned and private, were eager to set up shop from Tijuana all the way to Tierra del Fuego. Given the dark statistics that I just mentioned, odds are tendencies will only increase. And besides, China is already the first or second trading partner of most of, if not all, countries in the region. With economics in mind, where do you see the relationship going? In which sectors do you envision Chinese participation to grow the most?
2: First of all, you raise a a number of important points. Uh, Certainly with the impacts of COVID-19 now compounded by the petroleum and and, uh, food price uh, increases, it's put a lot of strain on Latin America. In general, I I see that uh, that has increased Chinese leverage overall, although uh, we're going to see a hesitation in the rate in which it advances in different sectors. So, um, you know, you certainly have a greater interest in biotech collaboration. You already have uh, co-production facilities uh, in in Chile, and I believe uh, coming up in Colombia and possibly in other places like Peru and Brazil and, and elsewhere. Although I, I certainly think that with the more uh, effective mRNA vaccines um, becoming widely available in Latin America right now, that initial effect that you got from the Chinese vaccine diplomacy with companies like uh, you know, Sinopharm and and, and, and Can sino and, and Sinovac has, has trailed off a bit. But uh, certainly um, in these difficult times, the uh, role that China plays as an importer of various uh, different goods, whether uh, Chilean uh, copper or, or cherries or um, Ecuadorian shrimp or El Salvadorian sugar or beef from, from Argentina, that has given China more leverage than, than ever. Um, certainly also the decisions that Chinese companies make in terms of um, investment, uh, whether it's uh, the management of of difficulties with the project of China min metals uh, in um, Las Bambas in in Peru, or whether it goes forward uh, with the troubled port of Chiang Kai, etc. Again, the economic situation and the constrained fiscal situation the governments find themselves in gives China a lot more uh, leverage. Uh, There are obviously opportunities for China, just like after the 2008 uh, global financial crisis that as we come out of the current uh, situation, that uh, Chinese companies will be well positioned through um, mergers and acquisition to acquire more properties in strategic sectors. However, I I do believe that there will be at least uh, some delay for a number of reasons. Number one, obviously, the economic havoc in Latin America takes certain investments and projects off the table. In China itself, uh, with the zero COVID policy and other difficulties, including an enormous debt overhang, uh, Chinese companies are hesitant to move forward. Indeed, uh, when we think of companies like Evergrande, um, especially the uh, putting of a lot of money and and a lot of debt into dubious infrastructure projects, I I think uh, at least uh, for the moment, uh, Chinese companies are are feeling their way. In addition to that, uh, you uh, have the ongoing uh, crackdown by President Xi against corruption, as well as this uh, delicate political transition to his unprecedented third term. And so I think all of those things in the near term mean that uh, Chinese companies are going to be hesitant in moving forward rapidly, although uh, you certainly do see signs of progress uh, from you know, projects in, in El Salvador to uh, Argentina and, and Chile. But uh, really, to go to your point of where, I think it, it really, China will continue to focus on the fundamentals and the things that it wants is secure access to resources, markets, and, and of course, the vehicle of, of connectivity, not just transport, but other things. And so where I really see China eventually advancing, um, you will continue to see uh, deepening in the petroleum sector across the region, certainly in the, in the mining sector, as we already see in places like Peru and in Ecuador, um, and even to a certain extent in Argentina, albeit with problem- problems, you uh, certainly will see continuing Chinese advances in the mining sector uh, in lithium, although that will probably be uneven. So, you know, you can note the problems that uh, the Gang Feng has run into um, with uh, Bacanora in in Mexico or some of the environmental difficulties uh, with the SQM project in the north of Chile. But in Argentina, it's making tremendous progress. I think green energy is another sector where you will continue to see Chinese advances not only in hydroelectric facilities, um, but probably some of the growth areas are, are certainly uh, wind and solar projects where, again, things like uh, Cachari in the north of Argentina, ASU in Brazil, and, and a number of, of others. And of course, wind projects across the region. Uh, but also things like electric vehicles, not only uh, in, in places like, like Chile, um, but also electric uh, cars, uh, such as the, the fleet recently uh, bought um, by the taxi fleet that uh, recently bought from, I believe, BYD in, in, in Mexico. And certainly the digital space, um, some of the types of technologies that were emphasized by China in made in China 2025 will probably be areas of continued expansion. So not just 5G and telecommunication and the Internet of Things, although certainly Huawei has expanded um, and will continue to expand there, but also in areas like surveillance technologies with Hikvision, certainly um, uh, e-commerce, uh, not only companies like Alibaba, but rideshare companies like, for example, Didi Shuksung. You know, even in areas like fintech, and especially in Brazil, where, for example, with Alibaba's um, uh, interest, partial interest in Nubank, in you see uh, you know, the Chinese beginning to uh, play a key role there. And in and, and things like um, cloud computing and data centers, where, again, uh, companies like Huawei have made tremendous advances. And so it really will be across the board, although, again, uneven and, and with some delays given the economic situation.
1: I'm curious, given the across-the-board expansion with an emphasis on technology... It begs the question, given the region's historical dependence on the export of natural resources, the rentier economic model, so to speak, why hasn't China fallen prey to the anti-imperialist, anti-colonial narrative that we tend to see among political elites and in some sectors of the population? which is usually directed against the United States and Western actors in general, because, well, frankly speaking, it's the same economic model, the same market dynamics that have kept most countries in the region stuck in the middle income trap. It's that ongoing conversation that never gets old. We are basically just changing a set of foreign actors for another while maintaining the same underlying way of doing business.
2: Well, you you raise an interesting, important point, Percival. Um, And I I remember uh, our colleague uh, um, Barbara Stallings' uh, book, uh, Taking a Look at Chinese Engagement in Latin America Through the Lens of Dependency Theory. And indeed, uh, when I used to teach at the University of Miami, I I would assign my my students readings from Raoul Priebus as as well as Emmanuel Wallerstein's World Systems Theory to make that subtle point – that uh, really, this can be understood in exactly that way. Uh, the question of who does the value added go to? Who controls the benefit? Um, you know, is it the Chinese companies who are operating on the ground in Latin America that are getting the benefit from the extraction of the resources, their transformation, their their transport, um, and then selling back much more uh, expensive uh, value added uh, goods? And uh, you know, where is the benefit to, to Latin America? You know, from that the that, that type of engagement, but. Certainly, the way China has managed this, I I would say, has uh, diffused some of those concerns. Certainly, as we both know, um, that many of the uh, manufacturers in Latin America do see China as a competitive threat in places like Mexico and Brazil, especially where they're you know, more politically well-organized. Um, many of the uh, more unionized uh, labor uh, organizations uh, also uh, look at, at the Chinese uh, skeptically. But at, at the political level, there is this hope for benefit um, and this understanding that there is a much closer relationship between the um, the Chinese government and their SOEs, and that oftentimes the Chinese are very vindictive. So that if you criticize Donald Trump in, the, um, in Latin America, or if you criticize Joe Biden, you don't expect that a, a US company will not invest. But there's a very real fear in Latin America that um, you know if you want to be the partner to the Chinese firm, you better not say too much about what the Chinese are doing with the internment of 2 million Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, or what they're doing with the stamping out of, of democracy against their treaty commitments in, in Hong Kong, or what they're doing to militarize islands in the South and East China Sea, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a a tendency of um, avoiding speaking too aggressively if, if you want uh, that benefit and you see that across the board you see it with politicians you see it with business people you see it with uh, you know many of of our uh, colleagues who go to forums like the Latin America think tank forum um, and uh, you, know, you want to be invited back you, you want to get access to those party officials you you you, know, you don't want to be ungrateful and so you you temper a little bit what you you say so I think that Chinese soft power has a little bit to to do with it, but it's also what the Chinese government itself does and how they manage it. Um, you know we of course, in the United States, we gringos as you know, tend to be very preachy
1: <laughs> yeah, you could say that
2: pushing for you know democracy and transparency the the chinese as as we both know tend to be a little bit more well you know as long as you treat their companies well and as long as you keep silent on on certain issues. They don't mind if you violate your own constitution. They don't mind if you violate your contractual commitments to, to other people. And so that creates a very comfortable model uh for, for Latin American governments to say, okay, um, you know, the Chinese don't give us problems, they don't tell us how to do things. And so, you know, even though there are some very real fears of who actually benefits from this relationship and, and what we're sliding into. There is a, a comfort among those who are signing the deals that uh, the Chinese don't um, ask a lot of uncomfortable questions or impose uncomfortable conditions. Now, as good studies like the the William & Mary uh, study taking a look at Chinese debt contracts show, the actuality is in terms of contractual provisions for um, not disclosing obligations, for cross-default clauses, for other ways that the Chinese can can call in loans if you violate things – the conditions that the Chinese put are oftentimes very onerous and very little beneficial. But the discourse is, um, I think um, the Chinese have been very good at the personal level and in the way they manage things of at least kind of diverting that anti-imperialist discourse to really let resentment accumulate for the way the relationship is going.
1: My assessment is the same, which is why I pay a lot of attention to Chinese diplomats and their public discourse. There seems to be a learning curve, right? You see them clicking all the right boxes in terms of presenting themselves as part of the global south, as an underdeveloped economy, as a country that shares the same problems. Does this represent a deeper knowledge of the region, a bit about its political landscape and its grievances with uh, Western countries, particularly with the United States? Or is it something more of a one-size-fits-all approach to the global South?
2: Well, I think it certainly is global. And as you know, the Chinese are simultaneously sophisticated and clumsy at the same time. I think some of the initial benefits come from the Chinese instincts. First, when the Chinese found themselves in a position of weakness, especially in Latin America, in the U.S. near abroad, they were instinctively deferential. It, it goes uh, back to old sayings about, you know, hiding one's capability and, and things like that. And so, you know, that style makes them seem much more palatable than the United States, which not only has politically dominated the region but has always preaching about democracy and transparency and human rights and, and things like that. The interesting thing, however, is that when the Chinese do apply pressure, historically they have applied it with a certain amount of subtlety. So for example, when they cut off Argentine uh, purchases from Argentina of soy back in 2010 because they were offended by the way in which uh, Argentina was locking out and putting uh, tariffs on, on Chinese goods on, on anti-dumping charges. And so uh, the Chinese are very good at at twisting the knife when they want to, but they often do it in subtle ways. Now, one of the interesting tendencies that you see increasingly is that as Chinese power has grown and as self-confidence has grown, especially with uh, the Xi Jinping presidency, that some of China's more aggressive authoritarian instincts have began to, to come out. And Some of China's sensitivity of how you talk or don't talk to people leaves it actually awkwardly without filters. Uh, you see this with some of the uh, wolf warrior diplomats that China has throughout the region, uh, especially uh, the uh, previous ambassador to Chile, who was basically forced to um, go back to China because his style offended uh, Chilean sensibilities. One of my Chilean colleagues said uh, you know, the Chinese thought that they were sending a regent, not an ambassador. Uh, you see also in some of the ways both in Latin America and Africa where the Chinese will talk about uh, different minority populations or, or rights or, or things like that that reflect just an inherent lack of sensibility of companies and, and countries that have not had to live within how to tolerate pluralistic democratic discourses. And you see it at the corporate level, I think as well, although clearly the Chinese are becoming more sophisticated um not only in terms of its government and I really have to applaud the advances that you see in the chinese foreign ministry uh the level of you know the number of fluent Portuguese speakers, the level of of fluent uh, you know Spanish speakers but also at the company level um you know big companies like like State Grid have set up training programs for their latin american facing personnel their their managers their technicians so that they can be more sensitive to these things. Um, and so I think overall, although though some countries, or some companies like, for example, MinMetals with just the disastrous performance in Las Bombas contrast poorly with others, such as, for example, uh, Chinalco in the Toromocho project, uh, or Huawei, who's been much more sophisticated. So although there's an unevenness, I think across the board, um, not only the Chinese diplomats, but the Chinese Companies are getting more sophisticated in in how they deal, but at the end of the day, the, the Chinese also have a big disadvantage relative to the United States or even the Europeans, which is their distance, um, the number of people, the limited number of people in China that actually speak Spanish, the limited cultural knowledge, and so um, you know that means that uh, the Chinese have a lot fewer options when they come over with their companies to actually do relations. There are a lot more people in the United States, although we don't always have a good constructive discourse towards Latin America, at the individual level, I I think uh, it's a lot easier for Western companies and, and their personnel to engage in Latin America. But again, the Chinese are working to overcome some of those difficulties.
1: Especially in the foreign ministry, as you mentioned. A case I'd like to point out is that of the Chinese ambassador to Colombia, Lan Hu. Prior to being assigned to Colombia, he was in the Latin America department at the foreign ministry back in Beijing. But before that, he was in Venezuela for about four to five years, acting as a political advisor at the embassy. He arrived in 2012, if I remember correctly, when Hugo Chavez was still alive. This means he was there during Chavez's last election, which was of vital importance not only to Venezuela, but also to the rest of the region, particularly Colombia. Lanjú is a diplomatic who is charismatic, who speaks fluent Spanish, and who is knowledgeable about Colombia-Venezuela relations, something that is fundamental to any diplomat from any country stationed in Colombia. What is more, uh, prior to Lanhu being assigned to Bogotá, there was a period of around five to six months where the post was empty something that, if I'm not mistaken, had never happened since Colombia recognized the PRC back in 1980. This is quite telling, for several reasons. So why did they take so long? And let's remember, this was back in 2020 when Colombia was a key ally of Venezuela's interim government under Huay Guaido. It's obvious they thought very carefully about who to send. This person had to know how to navigate the extreme complexities of Venezuela-Colombia ties at the time. And then Lan Hu shows up. For me, this is a brilliant appointment. It speaks to a deeper knowledge of the political dynamics of the region. So definitely, they have come a long way in the last 15 to 20 years, when Chinese diplomats who spoke Spanish were just, just a few. And we didn't see much engagement at high level between China and the governments in the region.
2: Sure. And you make a great point, which is that the nature of US concerns about China's ga- engagement in Latin America sometimes are a little bit different from the way that engagement is seen from a Latin American uh, perspective. And certainly the US doesn't always good a, do a good job in articulating that. And um, oftentimes the perception is in Latin America, oh, this is just all about great power competition." Now. I think from the U.S. perspective, and I've certainly seen the concerns evolve. I have been following this, as you know, for about 20 years. And you know, if you go back to the days of, for example, um, you know, people like Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Arturo Valenzuela or, or Roberta Jacobson, and the evolution from kind of concern and discomfort to the more active pushback during uh, President uh, Trump's administration to, I, I would say, the continued concern and engagement today, but in a perhaps a little bit less aggressive way. Uh, for example, the fact that the rumors are that the new U.S. national security strategy does not national security, uh, Western Hemisphere Director um, Juan Gonzalez actually takes pride in, in calling out that we we don't call out China in the Western Hemisphere in, in the new strategy. But I think as I see it, and, and I think as colleagues that I've talked to um, you know, see it, number one, there is a broader concern of the growing Chinese position in terms of the effect of on the US policy agenda in the region, things that we want to promote in terms of democracy, human rights, you know, et cetera, the, the security relationships that we want to have collaborating on things like drugs and, um, and, and immigration. And the sense is that the availability of Chinese money as an alternative decreases in important ways the leverage not only of the US, but US institutions while also displacing to a certain degree US and, and Western companies. And of course, um, it also impacts uh, adversely the, the region. Now, but it's not just about you know, that soft power, if you will, but uh, one can say that there is an indirect effect of the Chinese companies in what I call incubating authoritarian regimes. So again, with your time in Venezuela, as you know well, it wasn't that you know Hugo Chavez came to power because of China or that Nicolas Maduro continued in power because of China. No, typically populist regimes have come to power in Latin America because of frustration with a performance of of parties and endemic corruption and and poor performance and inequality and and things like that. But once in power, what's different about the current crop of of populists versus those in the 90s and and before is this time around, as those regimes... often applying a blueprint of how you consolidate power and, and how you move against the pop, the private sector and how you change the rules of the, of the game. As they do those things and as Western investors and companies uh, get uncomfortable, the Chinese are there to say, okay, we'll continue to give you money. We'll buy your commodities. Uh, we will arrange things as they did in Venezuela with the oil for loans uh, deals in ways to make sure that we get paid. So you do what you want with your constitution, with your people, et cetera. As long as as you treat us well, we will give you the lifeline through those loans and Commodity purchases and, and of course, you know, in some cases, investments that will give you the political space to do what you want. And at the end of the day, also, as we see in Venezuela with the, the VN1 uh, uh, security uh, vehicles that were used uh, repeatedly to repress um, you know, Venezuelans during national protests, as well as uh, you know the use of CEIEC to, to spy on, on Juan Guaidó. Or the um, the use of the uh, you know ZTE built a Carnet de la Patria to help in the you know distribution of of the clap boxes in, in Venezuela or even in Cuba where um, the architectures that Huawei had helped. Build for Octessa, the Cuban telecommunications authority, were instrumental last July in in helping it to shut down those protests. Just in the same way that that Chinese companies, you know, control the information space in in China, and so um, both through resources and then through other types of tools, China, in the process of pursuing its own interests, indirectly leads to a hemisphere that is ever less democratic and, and filled with the types of regimes that. Are less disposed to cooperate with the United States. Now there is a third area which is strategic threats, and so I, I would say that uh, you know certainly we we see some of the signs of, of Chinese aggression o- over uh, Taiwan, um, and uh, certainly what Russia has done in Ukraine and in China's uh, embrace of that has taken it to to a new level. But the idea of if before the end of Xi's uh, third term, um, as many believe that he wishes to do, uh, the PRC moves to forcibly or otherwise incorporate Taiwan, and we get into a war over that, it's highly likely that the PLA, as a responsive military, thinks about, well, how would we operate in the hemisphere? And so um, you know, that commercial presence, the mill-to-mill relationships, the arms sales, the institutional visits, those things all expand the PLA's ability to operate in the region in the context of a global fight, even if they're not looking to set up bases there today. So I guess where I would conclude with this is that the types of things that are transforming the region... The real reason why the United States is is most concerned, and I'd say uncomfortable, is that this is the region where we are most tied to what happens, even if we don't always pay attention to that in terms of ties of geography and ties of of commerce and and investment, in ties of of family. As you see with issues like immigration, even when we pretend that we want to focus on other parts of the world, what happens in the region directly affects the United States in domestic policy terms and it repeatedly forces our attention. And so I think there's an inherent level of discomfort when China's doing certain things that transform the politics, affect US influence, and create the risk that in time of war, we would have to deal with a, uh, you know, Chinese forces uh, in the region itself.
1: Many of the points that you just brought up, don't they have to do more with local conditions than with China per se, one of the things I've observed is that people tend to ask broad questions. What is China's impact in Latin America? The thing is, the results of engagement obviously vary by country, by sector, but I think the most important indicator of success, failure, and everything in between is in fact the level of institutionality in the recipient country, how strong its institutions are. You do see a lot of successful Chinese projects in different sectors. But but the thing is, the success rate seems to be correlated with how strong the, the rule of law is. On this topic, I'd like to point out the extremes of Chinese engagement in the region. On the one side, you have Venezuela, where after $62 billion in loans from China, neither country has anything to show for it. It it was a disaster of monumental proportions. On the other hand, you have Chile, a developed country with strong institutions that by and large, has been able to capitalize on Chinese investment without any corruption scandals like the ones we saw in Venezuela. I like to think that the Chinese government and Chinese companies got burned in Venezuela. Maybe they've learned from the experience a kind of 101 manual on this is what happens when you deal with a kleptocracy. Basically, Chinese participants, because they didn't push for transparency, because they took a kind of hands-off approach to the way their loans were uh, being administered, which in essence is part of their so-called no-strings-attached approach to international relations. And in the end, they dug their own grave in Venezuela. But anyways, the narrative coming out of Washington, regardless of the administration, maybe China and Chinese companies... While they might exacerbate many of the problems that plague some of these countries, they are not necessarily the root of the problem, just a manifestation of the country's rule of law and institutions. So I was wondering, aren't U.S. interests better served by reframing the conversation, something that is not China-focused? Illegal mining, the environment, I don't know, uh, supporting a free press, affected indigenous populations, corruption, or any other topic that is of interest to elected officials and their constituencies. In my humble opinion, that would be a much more constructive way to address U.S. concerns vis-a-vis China's growing participation in Latin America, instead of making or addressing China as a malign actor that has little to nothing to offer the region.
2: Well, I certainly agree with you, Parcival, that the U.S. narrative in both Republican and Democratic administrations has not been effective. I think, uh, you know, certainly the narrative of just "don't engage with China" is seen badly. It's seen as great power politics, and it plays into some of the perceptions that historically Washington has been too interventionist and, and overbearing in the region itself. But in addition to that, um, you know, given that the Chinese have this very real soft power, this this desire to benefit from the Chinese money, I think most. Latin Latin American actors in business and otherwise, know that the Chinese tend to be very aggressive actors. They can be very predatory in their dealings and in their contracting, as, as we've talked about, and certainly with the coordination of the government across sectors that makes it very difficult to deal with if you're not on your game. Uh, there's generally a knowledge that the Chinese companies will try to you know, rob your intellectual property if, if they possibly can and get the better end of the deal with a, you know, with a local partnership. Oftentimes, I think uh, companies uh, want to believe that they can control the risk to get the benefit. And so there is a discursive tendency that if I can, if I just call it great power politics, then that morally and in my due diligence frees me up to take the Chinese money because, you know, nothing really to be worried about here. And so I think most Latin Americans understand that whatever they think about Washington, there is this unresolved question about whether or not Chinese companies and their engagement are actually good or not for the region. And that goes to the first part of your question, which is that Clearly, the nature of, of Chinese investment, at least with some companies, makes the characteristics of the regime ever more important. I mean, in the US and most Western companies, we have things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. We have a certain amount of oversight where um, you know, if US companies do not behave well, and oftentimes they, they do not, there are at least vehicles for for going against that. I think what happens in, in China oftentimes is that the risk when you deal with China through state-to-state deals and non-transparency, those tendencies of the kickbacks for the official involved, the intermediation contract going to the sister-in-law's brother's company, et cetera, those types of things are much more rampant with Chinese companies. And also just the Chinese sophistication with bureaucracy, the negotiation is of the cross default clauses, the negotiation of other things. So I think you're perfectly right that if you look at some of the countries that have gotten the worst deals, whether it was Venezuela under under Chavez or um, Ecuador under Rafael Correa or the many uh, contracts with Bolivia under Evo Morales, oftentimes it has been the politicization of those populist bureaucracies and the insufficiency of transparency and technical personnel and the exclusion of of non-Chinese alternatives that has really made those countries vulnerable to bad deals. I mean, Venezuela probably, as you pointed out, one of the worst, whereas more strongly institutionalized regimes like, like Chile um, have been able to you know, get a better deal um, in terms of environmental compliance, in terms of labor laws and things like that. So you're absolutely right that it makes a the, the most important thing is not to not do business with China, but if you're going to deal with China and take advantage of the opportunities, you really have to be on top of your game in terms of, of transparency and level playing field and rule of law and strong institutions. But the question of what does the United States uh, need to do differently, and, and certainly the Biden administration is going exactly in the direction I believe that you say, trying to avoid making China the issue. It really does become the elephant in the room because you know if one recognizes that the deals that China is pursuing in the context of vulnerable countries. And we're moving, as you well know, in a situation in Latin America where the amount of vulnerability between the COVID-19 effects and, and the um, the war in the Ukraine effects and the weakened fiscal conditions of, of countries and the, the new shift to a greater number of of regimes that are willing to do the state-to-state deals and are open to doing things with the China. You know, the vulnerabilities and needs have increased dramatically. And so, I think certainly there is something to be said for the US trying to be a a better partner to help Latin American states strengthen institutions and fight for transparency and evaluate risks and organizations like, for example, the US Corps of Engineers, which is working closely with Ecuador to help it better structure deals. So even if it works with the Chinese, it, it gets a better deal. I think those are certainly productive things and we can certainly Improve the discourse, and, and frankly, we need to do a better job in data-driven discourse to talk about what the actual track record of Chinese companies are, and you know, not say that all Chinese companies are bad or that you know, just you shouldn't deal with with China. So, absolutely agree with you in that area.
1: Speaking about the Venezuelan case, I think this has to do with a deep-rooted problem that has plagued Latin American politics for decades now. And it's the lack of cooperation and integration, including the exchange of information amongst governments. One thing that surprised me the most during the runoff to Colombia's recent presidential election is that the word China didn't come up once. Not in political campaigns, the debates, nowhere. So why is this so surprising to me? Because right next door you have a country that has been immensely influenced by China. The only two countries that came up during the election were the United States and Venezuela, and some superficial mentions of the EU. So the link between Colombia, Venezuela, China was never made. Just now you mentioned that many governments in the region are aware of the harmful side effects of dealing with China and Chinese companies and yet in my experience I haven't really perceived that. It's like every country it's its own island and what China does in Venezuela doesn't impact its activities in Colombia and and the same goes for the rest of the region. So could you please elaborate on these conversations you've had with politicians, policymakers, and academics that gave you that impression, that sense that people in power and and business circles are aware and pay attention to the downsides and challenges of engaging with China.
2: Sure, and also just to respond to your comments, uh, first it's probably a sad testimony of the depth of the problems that Colombia is facing right now. That between the FARC and the ELN and the other GAO, um, and the stresses of you know two million Venezuelan refugees in the country, and violence in the countryside, and you know the question of the green economy, that um, you know China has not come up. But as you also recognize, in in Colombia, even while being very close to the United States. China has had a non-insignificant role um, in many parts. I mean, you have in, in manufacturing, although limited, I mean, you know, companies like Foton manufacturing out, outside of Bogota, motorcycle facilities like Jialeng and Jinching and in and Cali, and, and I believe in, up in the coast, uh, manufacturing by companies like AKT, uh, you know, just about all of the major Colombian companies. I mean, I think of Colcafe. Café, uh, you know, also with their interest in the, in the Chinese market. Um, so it's not that Chinese is not present, and, and they've for years been interested in getting involved in Buenaventura. They been of course in infrastructure they've just begun through public private partnership projects with uh, for example the uh, the construction of that major highway from Medellin up to Nicocoli um, one of the 4G highway projects uh, of course famously uh, you know the Bogota metro between uh, Xian metro and and i believe uh, China harbor with that at least just beginning to to advance and of course uh, the chinese also have had significant problems in colombia so uh, right now, the, the, the very real mess of the Zahin mining project in Antioquia, for, for example, or some of the problems that, for example, Emerald Energy has had in, in operating in the very dangerous region in, in, in the Colombian Yanos, uh, including the, the kidnapping of, of some of its personnel. And so uh, there arguably has been a, a polemic there. But in terms of your question of uh, you know, China as, as an aggressive actor, and it probably depends on the political orientation. So, um, for example, if you look at the Ecuadorian government right now, and for example, the commission that Federico uh, um, Villavicencio, uh, who was actually persecuted under the uh, Rafael Correa uh, government for exposing some of these dirty deals, is, is now part of a government commission under Guillermo Lasso talking about this. So the problems, for example, with the Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam are, are very public. You know, the problems with rewriting the Coca-Cola River, the problems with, with some of the other, I think, Santa. Francisco was one of the other ones that had problems. Even if you look in places like Bolivia, um, where you had problems with, you know, everything from the Rositas uh, Dam project to the any number of, of different train and, and other um, um, infrastructure projects that have been actually cancelled under the the leftist government of, of Evo Morales. And so I think even while there's a tendency publicly to laud the Chinese, the, the track record has been a lot of. Problems with with the Chinese government. Mexico is is famous for you know talking about ah los pinches chinos, um, both at the corporate <laughs> level um, and and even AMLO. Matter of fact, one of the Chinese frustrations with Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador right now is he talks out of both sides of his mouth, caliento los oidos de, de los gringos, um, talking about how much they distrust <laughs> the Chinese and at the same time talking with the Chinese about how important they are to. You know, Zuma Energy and Bacanora and, and Train Maya and La Boca's Refinery and, and things like that. I've talked to Brazilians, who, for example, Embraer. I've talked to Embraer executives that said, "Hey, when we set up in Harbin, we knew that the Chinese would try to rob our IP and basically uh, beat us out into the large uh, regional jet market before we could leverage ourselves to get into that market ourselves." Um, so the bet was that they could protect their IP. Another, another Colombian case, uh, for example, um, what happened about ten years ago in Antioquia when Sinohydro was trying to get the Hidroatuanco project, and, and again uh, the were a number of the empresarios in that area that didn't want for their lives to let the Chinese get a foot in the door. And so at the end of the day, that project ended up getting broken up into a series of, of other projects and, and assigned to, to non-Chinese actors. And so, so I think at the end of the day, um, I oftentimes see the Chinese advance as a civil war between those who want to profit by bringing the Chinese in. I mean, I think, for example, in Mexico, the Dragon Mart project with Carlos Castillo and then all of the others who were, you know, the, the leather goods manufacturers and others who wanted to stop the Chinese from getting in. And oftentimes, for example, in the construction sector, if you look at places like Jamaica, or I remember um, there's a project in, I believe it was uh, um, Suriname, where they wanted to do a palm oil uh, with uh, then political dissident uh, Ronnie Brunswick. And everyone started talking about, well, you know, well, you know that the Chinese eat dogs and, and use slave labor and things like that. So oftentimes the the local companies that want to keep the Chinese out will use the most offensive, racist, language and prejudices to, to try to fight that fight and so so i think there's an understanding at, at the end of the day it's not that well everyone clearly knows that the chinese are bad but the discourse is not that just latin america is blindly walking into it. i mean i think if you ask the average business person um, you know they you know some see the glasses half full and that there are these possibilities if you just know how to deal with the chinese and be a good partner and and keep your mouth shut on, on politics and Others see the Chinese as, okay, well, they, um, you know, they set up a shell company and they divert money from one company to the, to the other and they leave us broke at the end of the day. I mean, I think there's a thousand different stories. And, and also, I think in the approximately 20 years that the Chinese have engaged, especially in the 12 years since the Chinese really started accelerating the presence on the ground, um, after about uh, two thousand and ten we 've gone from the old days I, I used to joke around that uh, my my old uh, friend uh, Jiang Su Shui uh, from China Academy of Social Sciences would put this lovable Chinese panda, and that was okay, the Chinese are here to rescue us, and other people say, no, the Chinese are the vicious dragon that are going to gobble us up. I think we 've gone from you know China as panda versus dragon to kind of an understanding of the Chinese are challenging actors with difficulties and problems that are different from the types of difficulties and problems of dealing with the gringos or Western investors.
1: On that note, Dr. Evan, obviously we could talk for hours on end. I always learn so much when I talk with you. Although before we go, I'd like to ask you for a recommendation. What do you have for us today?
2: Well, Shameless self-promotion. As you know, I've been following uh, this topic for about 20 years and I just published my my fifth book where I tried to talk about uh, what this means in, in a variety of different areas. Um, it's called uh, China Engages Latin America, Distorting Development or Democracy. And uh, again, it's uh, through uh, available through Palgrave Macmillan. It costs a uh, ridiculously large amount of money um so i would encourage everyone to to buy at least 3 or 4 copies but again um a real honor to to be on the the show and uh, i welcome the opportunity to uh, continue uh, to engage with uh, with you uh, and, and and your team on this uh, very very important topic
1: for sure we will definitely have you back on the show sometime soon after all the us continues to be the most important actor in the region so it's always important for us to get a sense of washington's perspective and its policy towards Latin America. And China is not going anywhere. So again, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.
2: I look forward to Parzival. Great talking to you.
1: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. As this is our first episode as part of the Seneca Network of China, we opted for doing it in English. That being said, most of our content will be in Spanish making us the first foreign language podcast of sub-China, something we couldn't be more excited about Hope you enjoy the show and see you all next time